Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word this morning, as we consider really the foolish exchange that the Galatians were making as they were trading out the gospel of free grace in Christ for some kind of mixture of Christ plus their own works. We pray that as we see Paul rebuking that and reminding them of the truth, of what he preached reminding them of the truth of their own conversion experience, reminding them of the truth of what the Old Testament promised. As we look at that, that your spirit would be powerfully at work in our own hearts and minds to correct us, to root out any self-reliance we have, to bring us back again and again to our need for your son Jesus and the sufficiency of his of him and his work. They'll rely upon nothing else knowing that he is enough. And that we would take great joy in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all, we all recognize a, a foolish trade or a foolish exchange when we see one, don't we? We recognize it right off when we see a bad trade that's been made. Um, whether it's in sports or in life in various ways, I can think of a particularly silly instance of a, of a bad trade that was made. A couple of years ago, our kids were trick-or-treating with some other families. We don't worship the devil, don't worry. We just go door-to-door -door and ask for candy. That's it. But <clears throat> it's all. But anyway, we, while we were doing that with another family, the kids came back with their haul of candy. And the other family's kids came back with their haul of candy. And, and as they, they started to divvy it all up, my son... Uh, participated in, in a brilliant move. He started trading all his hand, hard candy for the Reese's peanut butter cups of another kid. But you know, there's nothing better than a Reese's peanut butter cup. And my son knew that, and so he played this other kid for the fool. And the other kid actually didn't care about the Reese's peanut butter cups, frankly, but his father did. <laughs> and I remember, I remember... The father's look as he recognized that all his son's Reese's peanut butter cups were gone. And thus all his Reese's peanut butter cups were gone. He had this, oh foolish child, 
who has bewitched you? I want, my kid did. My, anyway, it's a silly example, but we understand that we recognize when people make a foolish exchange. We recognize it right off, don't we? We see them exchange their time with their family for success in a career. Or, or, or exchange their, their family altogether to pursue alcohol or drugs. Or we see one spouse trade a faithful spouse for an adulterous relationship. And perhaps the first and most serious, most serious foolish exchange really, in fact I would say the first and most serious foolish exchange really happened at the fall as Adam exchanged the wisdom of God for the foolishness of Satan. Fundamentally, we either listen to the wise voice of God and the word of God, or we listen to the foolish voice of Satan in the counsel of the world and the flesh and the devil. And the Apostle Paul is really addressing the Galatians who have made a foolish exchange. And what's their foolish exchange? They've exchanged God's grace for Satan's legalism. Do you hear that? Legalism is satanic. And it's heretical. And it's why you should be very careful before you start throwing around the label on people, by the way. Because you're, with your words, if you will, damning them. Legalism is satanic. And the Galatians were exchanging the free grace of God in Christ through faith for legalism. They'd exchanged the gospel for slavery to the law. Central to this whole text, really, in Galatians, is that they've exchanged trust in the sufficiency of Christ and him crucified as their hope of salvation for what? Trust in their own good works as their hope. And as we look at the text, what I want to do is look at, really, how the Galatians have made this foolish exchange, and we're going to look at Three reminders that Paul gives them. He really gives them three reminders to, to urge them to cease from their foolishness. Paul is passionately calling upon the Galatians to repent of their foolishness, and he does so really through three reminders. The first one is the Christ he preached. The second is the Christ they received. And the third is the Christ promised in the Old Testament. So we're going to walk through those. But before jumping into the first point, the Christ that Paul preached, I really want to look at how Paul addresses the Galatians to sort of set the mood, the context of the mood of their address, look, of his address. Look at how he addresses them. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, if I'm going to break that down briefly for you to give some understanding of it, of Paul's mood, that first word there, oh, is, is in the vocative. It's, 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 a, it's a vocative of address. It's the way I address somebody, and I'm addressing them. Oh, foolish child. Oh, foolish Galatians. It's this kind of address that, that expresses Paul's really indignant astonishment of their abandonment of the gospel. They'd abandoned the gospel so quickly. He had only preached this um, to this church and planted it about six months to a year before he's writing this letter. You hear that? He'd only planted the church about six months to a year ago. And now they're abandoning the gospel already. And he's, he's indignant with them. 
He's emotionally charged here is what he's getting at. He's beside himself. He then says, oh foolish Galatians. Now if you're very familiar with your Bible, you might stop and, and wonder immediately, how could he call them fools? I mean, doesn't Jesus in Matthew 5, 22, say that whoever calls his brother a fool is liable to the fire of hell? Jesus says that. You call your brother a fool, you're liable to the fire of hell, and here's Paul, oh fools. So is Paul liable to the fire of hell? How do I resolve the problem? How is it that Paul's not violating Jesus' very clear command? Well, the reason is, is that the Greek word behind fool in Matthew 5.22 is a very different word than the Greek word being used here. The Greek word in Matthew means worthless fool. In other words, it's used in the context of murder in the heart. Jesus is saying it's not just when you murder someone by actually killing them, but it's when you commit murder in the heart. Therefore, you call someone fool, you're liable to punishment of hell. He means there, you're calling them worthless fool. You're saying they have no value. You're saying, really, it's kind of like saying, I wish you were dead, or you're dead to me. You're worthless. Go to hell. And he says, you say that to people, or about people, in your heart, you're liable to the fires of hell. And I bet most of us have done it. Which goes to our need for Christ. The idea is that you basically, in in Matthew 5.22, is that you're devaluing another person. You're saying they're without worth or value. What Paul's saying here when he uses this word for foolish is he's using a word that means really foolish or unintelligent or stupid. Still not complimentary. Oh, stupid Galatians. Some translations have it that way. If I wrote you a letter and somewhere in there I said, oh, stupid sovereign grace, you probably wouldn't feel particularly complimented. Idea of being unwise or spiritually dull is what he's getting at. They're spiritually dull. Paul is really speaking of how Solomon speaks in the Proverbs is what he's doing when Solomon compares the fool to the wise man. The one who fears the Lord and listens to his word is wise The one who listens to the world, the flesh, and the devil is a fool. And the context here, I I want to get at this because Paul's using strong language. The context here is not just Paul's indignation or anger, though he is angry. The context here is that he's deeply grieved and he's distressed about people he loves. Look what he goes on to say. Who has bewitched you? Who's put you under the trance of false doctrine? Who's put you under the evil eye and cast a spell on you? Now, we know that the false teachers are the ones who've done this, namely the Judaizers. They're the ones who've done it. But Paul uses the singular who here. And what he's doing there is he's really pointing out that Satan has done it. Satan has got a hold of you through false teachers. I planted this church. I publicly proclaimed the gospel to you only six months to a year ago And you're already being carried away by the false gospel of legalism that Satan preaches through his emissaries, the Judaizers. Who's bewitched you? Why have you become foolish? Why have you stopped listening to the wisdom of God and the word of God and started listening to the foolishness of Satan from his emissaries? 
He planted this church. He loves these folks. He's their father in the faith. You know this feeling if you're a parent. You know this feeling. You raise your child and, and then you see them run off into foolishness after you've shown them wisdom. You've shown it to them. You see them run off. And you become indignant, angry, and you are grieved and distressed. Isn't that true? The whole range of emotions hits because you love them. And you're wondering, oh foolish child, who has bewitched you? Did I not show you what wisdom is? How could you so quickly run off into foolishness? And that's what's happening here for Paul. Paul's a pastor. He loves these people. Pastors should get this. We should be deeply jealous, by the way, that our people walk in the wisdom of God. Other believers in the body, you should get this. You should be deeply jealous that your brothers and sisters in Christ walk in the wisdom of God. You should feel deep grief and indignation when you see people you love walking away from the truth. That's why Paul tells us as we're being trained up in Ephesians 4, to do what? Speak the truth and love to one another. Why? We're building up the body so that we're not carried away by what? Every wind of false doctrine. We care about each other. It's not just about being a controversialist. Paul isn't just this guy who likes to go on Facebook and smack people around and stoke fires. Paul, Paul's, they didn't have Facebook then, you know that, right? Okay. That's a little anachronistic. Maybe if Paul lived today, he would have liked Facebook. I don't know. But he probably wouldn't have been starting controversies um, just for the sake of starting a controversy. Now, Paul was controversial, but not for the sake of being controversial. You have to understand the difference. Paul was controversial for the sake of teaching people the truth because he loved people. He, he wanted to win back people. He had a deep-seated desire to rebuke and win back his beloved church. In fact, the same is true in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this to the Corinthian church who are being carried away by super apostles. He says this, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Did you hear that? Paul was jealous. And it wasn't just jealousy, it was godly jealousy. I feel a divine or godly jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus to you than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You just let the false gospel come on in. And he's jealous for them. And in Paul's grief and anger and desire to win them back, he makes three appeals to them to remember so they would remember what is true. Here's his first reminder. The first reminder is the Christ that Paul preached. Do you hear that? I could have exchanged this out for the gospel that Paul preached. The Messiah, the Christ that Paul preached. Because Christ is the gospel. But, but let's, let's look at what he says Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Look at the, really the third part there of uh, verse 1. It was before your eyes. Interesting language, isn't it? Before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, the Galatians were not present at the crucifixion. 
So it's an interesting language for Paul to use about his preaching. It would seem that if I preached the gospel to you, it would be before your ears that Christ Jesus is being said to have been crucified, but he says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. In other words, a picture was given of him crucified. And what Paul's getting at here as he speaks in the past tense of his own preaching, he's saying this, you remember when I preached to you about Jesus the Messiah? Remember that. Remember me preaching about the cross and how on that cross he paid the cost for all your sins. Remember as the Spirit opened your ears, as the Spirit removed the scales from your blinded eyes so you could see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ. Remember you could almost see Jesus on the cross paying for your sins in front of you. And you heard that and you saw it and you received that news with great joy. It was that moment, remember that moment, Galatians, it was that moment that all your other claims to righteousness fell away and you knew and experienced the truth of Christ and his cross is everything for you. You knew that. Remember that moment. How could you go back so soon? Listen, once you begin to think that you can add anything, you could add anything to Christ and his work in your salvation, you begin, now hear this, you begin questioning the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. You say it's not enough. It really wasn't finished. The debt was paid in part. Now there's something else I have to do. That's why Paul is stunned that the Galatians are so quickly deserting the gospel. Paul preached a gospel of Christ crucified. That is what Paul preached. He proclaimed the gospel in a manner that he held it up before his audience so they could see Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, ultimately, I understand that this seeing of Jesus and him crucified is the work of the Holy Spirit, but the preaching was Paul's responsibility. They had been told of, who, of the God who spoke the universe into existence. I want you to think of this. They had been told of the God who spoke the universe into existence. The God who gives life and breath and in whom they have their being. They've been told of the God who is holy, holy, holy. The God who cannot lie and in whom there is no sin. They've been told of the God who out of great love and mercy sent his son to save them. They've been told that the creator became the creature. That the lawgiver had become the law keeper. That the immortal had taken on mortality, that the Lord became the servant, the one who was out without sin, had been tempted every way. Further, they learned that this Savior, this Messiah, this Jesus, had gone to the cross and paid their penalty. And at that cross, the exalted one became the humiliated one. The holy one became sin. The one who was life became death. The Son of God became the enemy of God. The light became darkness. The blessed one became the curse. They'd heard this gospel. They'd seen it proclaimed to them. When Jesus died on the cross and bore the wrath of God due to us, the sky became darkened as all the eternal suffering of hell was unleashed upon Jesus, the one who deserved none of it. And here's Paul's point. I preached this gloriously good news to you so that you could taste and see the Lord is good and now you're walking away from it so that you could see that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because he and his cross work and his resurrection are sufficient for you. And you think you're going to add to it? 
You fools. Who's bewitched you? Remember, I showed you Christ and him crucified. What more could you need? How could you add anything to that? How can you see Christ upon the cross and think that your works are worth anything? Listen, if you're an unbeliever here, I want to make this clear. You, you don't clean up your act and then become a decent person so that you can then come to Jesus. That isn't how it works. It isn't how it works. If you think that's what you do, then you think somehow you're adding to all this. You come to Jesus because you're not a decent person, because your works cannot earn you approval before God. You come to Jesus and you look to him and you know that he and he alone is your righteousness and you trust in him and you're saved, you're forgiven of your sins, you're declared righteous. The Holy Spirit changes you and the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, begins to clean up your act for you. You look to Jesus and him crucified, he's enough. Let's look at Paul's second reminder, the Christ they received. Because he doesn't want to just talk about the Christ he preached. He wants to talk about the Christ they received. Their conversion experience, in other words. I proclaim this gospel to you, this Christ to you. Now, I want to remind you of that. Now I want to remind you of your own conversion. Look what he says in verses 2 through 5. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? I notice that's a passive word, receive. It doesn't say, did you earn the Spirit? Did you grab hold of the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit passively? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, something you did, or by hearing with faith? Another way to, to translate that is by believing the message. How'd you receive the Spirit? By something you did? Or by believing the message, by hearing with faith? And, and we know it's a rhetorical question. Clearly, they received the Holy Spirit by believing the message, not by anything they did. And he goes on, he's going to hammer this. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, in other words, you were saved by the Spirit as he brought you to Christ, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, the Spirit is the one who brought you into spiritual life and you received him through faith, are you now that you've got the Holy Spirit going to complete the work on your own? He started it. Are you finishing it? Think about the arrogance in that. The third member of the Trinity, the eternal God, the one, the one who hovered over the surface of the deep at creation, the one who brought order, the one who was breathed into Adam and Eve to give them life. The one who resurrected Jesus from the dead. The one who empowered him for all his ministry. The one who works in us to give us spiritual life. You received him through faith. How in the world can you possibly be so foolish as to think that you can add to that? That somehow he started it, but I'm going to finish it. Think of the arrogance of it. The third person of the Trinity is good, but I got something to contribute. Goes on. Did you suffer so many things in vain? And actually, I don't think the word suffer is the best word there. I think it really is the best word is experience so many things in vain. If indeed it was in vain. Does he 
Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, now notice that, again, passive, he supplies the Spirit to you. Did you hear that? You received him, he supplies him to you. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so, now catch this, by works of the law, in other words, as a result of your own doing, or does he do so by hearing with faith, through your believing the message? Paul's appealing to their conversion experience. If you're a believer, you know this experience of the Spirit opening your eyes, don't you? You know it. So that you see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, you may have been so young when it happened that you really don't remember it. But particularly if you were converted older, you know this experience. And Paul is asking the Galatians and you to remember that. Remember it. He's warning them to not bind this lie that they earn God's approval. Listen, you did not receive the Spirit by the works of the law. It's another way of saying you did not receive Christ and forgiveness of sins and adoption as sons and spiritual life through what you did. You're not saved by your obedience. You're not even accepted. Now catch this, because of your faithfulness. Do not, do not subtly turn faith, which is looking into another, into faithfulness, which is keeping yourself committed to another. You understand the difference? In faith, I look to another. With faithfulness, I keep myself committed to another. Don't turn faith into faithfulness. Paul is saying you receive this by faith. Frankly, now I want you to hear this. You did not even receive this or receive Christ through repentance. What? Yes, repentance is necessary. But repentance is necessary as a consequence of faith. And it comes right away. Yes, it does. But repentance is not a condition of justification of being declared righteous, of being forgiven sin for your sins. We, we confess, I think biblically, sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone is the necessary and sufficient condition, the sufficient condition for justification, for forgiveness of sins, declaration of righteousness. And repentance is not exactly the same as faith. They come together, but they're not exactly the same. Here, here's what it's like. You'll, you'll remember this if you remember your conversion experience. When the Spirit opened your eyes and you saw the truth about Jesus, you saw him, if you will, publicly portrayed as crucified before your eyes. When you saw the Son of God sacrificed for your sins, when you saw the Holy One, perfect, undefiled, without sin upon that cross for you, everything changed in that moment. You suddenly knew at that point your pretensions and your efforts were all a sham, didn't you? You knew. You were there hearing the gospel, seeing the truth, and you knew you brought nothing to the table at that moment. It was all about him. He did it all. You knew that right then. You knew you couldn't earn God's approval, and you knew you didn't need to anymore because he did it for you. And you were humble to the core. You came to an end of yourself and you saw him and what he had done for you. And you believed and you were saved and you were adopted as sons. And all at once, you turned from your sin in repentance and you lived for him. Because faith gave you sight to see him, which humbled you and caused you to repent. Do you see the difference? 
Did you receive the Spirit through faith or through works of the law? Through believing the message or through works of the law? Remember when you were saved by Christ? Did you do anything to add to that? Or did you hear the gospel preached, see Christ and him crucified and believe? And then he changed you. So you want to know him well now and please him because of the deep gratitude and love you now have. This is because you received the Holy Spirit through faith, not by works of law. And what could be greater than receiving the Holy Spirit? What could be greater? Certainly not my works. Certainly not yours. See, once you start to add your works to any of it, 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 it is the ultimate exercise in arrogance, isn't it? Because you're essentially saying that Christ isn't enough, that the Holy Spirit isn't enough, that you've got to add something to it. That's blasphemy. It's satanic. It isn't a mild rebuke of true doctrine. It's blasphemous. You're degrading the name of the Son and of the Spirit. And frankly, of the Father who gave them for you. See, what Paul is getting at is that not only were they told this good news, but the Holy Spirit gave them sight to see it and ears to hear it. They not only knew that Jesus the Messiah died on the cross for sinners, they knew he died on the cross for them. They could join the psalmist in awe in saying, who am I that you would be mindful of me? How could it be that your banner over me is love? You delight in me? You, you sing, have you read the old You sing hymns over me? Why? I'm of the dust. I am a worm. Worse than that, I've sinned against you, and I am your enemy. Yet you loved me and sent your son for me? Do you remember, Sovereign Grace, when you saw Christ crucified through the preaching of the gospel? Do you remember when you first heard the good news of your salvation? Oh, foolish Christians, who has bewitched you? That you thought you could earn or deserve any of this. Who has bewitched you that you thought your works or faithfulness ever added anything to Christ or his spirit? The spirit was not given to you because you merited him. You received him by believing the message. And you don't keep him and you don't merit more of him through your good works. You began with the spirit by faith in Christ and you continue the Christian life in the same way. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2, 6-7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, now, does this make works of the law useless in the Christian life? See, that becomes the question, doesn't it? I'm going to deal with that more over the next coming sermons. But does this make works of the law useless in the Christian life? Does it make the law useless in the Christian life? And the answer is no. There are really three purposes the law serves in your life. I'm not going to get into all of them this morning. I've only addressed two really quickly. Let me give you two of the purposes the law serves in your life. One, the law demonstrates your undeniable need of a Savior. It crushes you. It shows you that you, not, you were not who you thought you were and that you need Christ. The law does that. Two, 
The law becomes a gracious guide for living the Christian life. Hear that? Becomes a gracious guide for living the Christian life, but it is not the power to live the Christian life. Do you understand the distinction? It's a guide, but not the power to live it. Michael Horton says it this way, the law is like the tracks of a train. It guides the train, but it never makes the train move. The tracks don't make the train move, but they guide the train. The gospel is the engine, really, of the train. What happens, Horton says, is that grace is empowering the train. The Holy Spirit united in Christ is what causes the train to move down the tracks of the Christian life, and the law keeps the train on the right track toward what pleases God. You hear the distinction? The law guides you, but it doesn't empower you. It crushes you. It never saves you. Be warned, Christian, to, try to, to return to trying to earn God's favor by the law is to return to the flesh. It's to return to the old order of things rather than to trust in Christ. It's to reject the sufficiency of the cross of Christ and to demean the Holy Spirit. So Paul reminds them of the Christ he preached. He reminds them of the Christ they received, the conversion experience. And third, he reminds them of the Christ promised in the Old Testament. Reminds them of the Christ promised in the Old Testament. Look at verse 6. Look there. Just as, he says, you know, coming off of verse 5, did you receive it by the Spirit by works of law or hearing with faith? Just as, now listen, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to, his, counted to him as righteousness. In other words, don't we read, what Paul's asking is, don't we read in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to, his, counted to him as righteousness. He believed God's message and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now let me continue. Know then that it is those of, the, of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? Those of the faith. And the scripture, catch this, the scripture, that's, he's personifying the scripture here. It's God speaking through his word. The scripture, foreseeing that, Abraham, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, sorry, preached the gospel beforehand. Now hear that. The scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Saying, in you, shall all the nations be blessed. That's from Genesis 12. And you all the nations shall be blessed. In other words, what Paul's saying is, in Genesis 12, God preached the gospel to Abraham. He goes on. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I'm going to return to this passage some next week, but Here's what I want to say. Paul wants to anchor his preaching and our experience in biblical promises. I preach this. You experience this. Don't you understand? This is what was promised in the Old Testament, which was their Bible at the time. Galatians, arguably, um, is the first letter written in the New Testament. Maybe James, maybe Galatians. We're not sure. But this was what was promised. In the Old Testament. It's not just what I preach to you. It's not just what you experienced. It's what's in the word of God. He argues you were justified and received the Holy Spirit by believing the message. Just as Abraham believed God and was counted as righteousness. And this is really a beautiful move on, Abra- on, sorry, on Paul's part. Why? Because the Judaizers are trying to take the Galatians back to who? Moses. They're trying to take the Galatians back to Moses. And say they must keep the Mosaic Covenant if they want to be forgiven, declared righteous before God, so if they want to come into the family of God, if you will, if they want to be a part of the people of God. So Paul goes to 
the fundamental, the most fundamental Old Testament covenant. He takes them back before Moses to Abraham. And he says, listen, the Mosaic covenant is super added on top of the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is fundamental. And I'm going to get to that in probably two weeks. So I'll I'll deal with it more. But what Paul's doing here is he's focusing on the original covenant with Abraham. And he's saying, listen, Abraham was justified by faith in God's promise. Paul's pointing them to Genesis 15, 6. Which is the point, at, at that point, God promises to Abraham that he'd have countless descendants from his seed. And Abraham didn't have any children yet. And his wife was barren. He had no children. His wife was barren. He was aging. And God says, I will give you as many descendants as the sands of the sea, uh, seashores. And, and, and what, what, what does Abraham do? He believes him. And Paul suddenly says, not all he believed. He believed his promises in Genesis 12. That I'll bless you. And I'll bless all the nations as you go forward through you and your seed. And Paul's going to go on to tell us that the seed of Abraham is Christ. See, the promise that Abraham believed was the gospel that we believe. Galatians 3.8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify. Notice that the Old Testament foresaw that God would declare righteous and forgive the sins of the Gentiles by faith, through faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. In other words, Abraham heard the gospel that the Messiah would come that his, from his line. The seed of the woman would come from his line and would save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And Abraham believed that promise. Abraham believed the same gospel you and I believe. Abraham believed the gospel of the coming Messiah who would save him and who would save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We believe in the Messiah who's come. He was looking forward. We're looking back. He was able to believe that the gospel preached, God preached to him in the Abrahamic covenant. He's able to believe that because the Spirit gave him eyes to see it, ears to hear it. Now, I want you to hear this. Abraham's covenant is a gospel covenant. That's what Paul tells us. That when Abraham received his covenant, God was preaching the gospel to him. It's a gospel covenant. And Abraham was justified through faith in Christ. Salvation has always come the same way. Justification is and always has been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Always. Always, there's one name under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. That doesn't just count for people in the New Testament forward, folks. Always been the only Savior. Abraham believed that. It wasn't invented by Martin Luther in the Reformation. It wasn't even new in Paul's preaching. The historical accomplishment of it was new when Paul was preaching. But the promise was not new when Paul was preaching. So, so what is it, what's true is what? It was true in Abraham's day. 
Sure, it was historically fulfilled by Jesus, and it was historically announced by Paul, and historically remembered in the Protestant Reformation, but it's always been true since we fell into sin that there's one way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And because this gospel was announced to Abraham, and Abraham believed, therefore Abraham is the father of all who believe. Look at Galatians 3, 7, and 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So who are the sons of Abraham who received the promises given to Abraham of blessing in Abraham's seed? Those who believe. Who are not the sons of Abraham? Those who do not believe. So the sons of Abraham are those of the faith, whether Jew or Gentile. Those who are not the sons of Abraham are those who reject the promise of the gospel of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. The sons of Abraham are those of faith, Verse 9, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We receive Abraham's blessings and are Abraham's sons when we share Abraham's faith. So indeed, Father Abraham, as the song says, has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you if you trust in Christ. If you want to be Abraham's sons and so receive the blessings God promised him in faith in Christ, then you must do what Abraham did. What did Abraham? This is Jesus' words, by the way. If you were Abraham's sons, you would do what Abraham did. This is what he's telling to a group of Jews. They're saying in John 8, we're Abraham's children. And Jesus says, no, you're not, because you don't do what Abraham did. If you were Abraham's sons, you would do what Abraham did. You're children of the devil. If you were Abraham's son, you would do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He believed in Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because Jesus says it in John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Hear that? He rejoiced that he would see my day. In other words, Abraham was rejoicing that he would see the day that Jesus, the Messiah, came to save the world. And Jesus goes on to say, he saw it and was glad. So Jesus says Abraham was trusting in him. Here's the question. Have you seen Jesus Christ and him crucified? Have you seen him? Spiritually. Have you heard the message? Have you believed? If so, you're blessed with Father Abraham and all the blessings of God are yours in Christ Jesus. If you have not, then I pray that you'll turn to him in faith and so be saved. I pray you'll turn to Christ in faith and so be saved. Sovereign grace, if you've forgotten the gospel of your salvation, that Christ and him crucified is sufficient for you, that that's how you receive the Spirit, that he began the work and he will bring it to completion, then turn from your foolishness and come back to looking to Christ as sufficient as your hope, as more than you could possibly need. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would apply your word to our hearts and minds, that we would trust in your Son and him alone, that we would know that he is sufficient for us, that we would see what a joke it is, really, Father, to trust in our own works, to look to our own faithfulness, 
as our hope that we would know really that stuff is silly when we peer upon and consider that the Messiah, the Son of God, was crucified for us, that he rose on the third day for our justification, that he has now ascended to your right hand from whence he has sent his spirit and from where he rules and reigns and ever intercedes for us. Cause us to turn from the foolishness of trusting in our own flesh and to look to your Son and him alone for our salvation, our hope, our life, our joy, knowing that your Spirit is powerfully at work in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.